you're still standing, if you could find in your Bibles Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. We've concluded our series in the Gospel of Luke, and as it's Reformation Sunday, we'll focus on one aspect of what the Reformers, and we think Scripture itself, uh, protects, and that's our assurance in Christ. So hear God's word then from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Lord, indeed, I pray that by your spirit you would bless and add your understanding to the reading and now preaching of your holy word. Uh, even through the preaching of your word, may we through Christ come to the throne of grace and receive from him mercy, grace, all that we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been highlighting the fact that this week we celebrate you know, over 500 years since uh, the 16th century when uh, these reformers like Luther and Calvin and others uh, really fought to, we'd say, not build, but reclaim what the Bible teaches on, on many different things. And in, in one sense, if you wanted to summarize uh, what, what was going on in the Reformation, it's very complex, uh, but it, you could summarize it in what questions uh, were the Reformers trying to answer from Scripture? Uh, and indeed, what answers were they fighting for? And so uh, probably you might be more familiar with the question of, is salvation by faith alone? Or does it have something to do with my works, that I, that I earn God's love? And the Reformers were willing to fight to say, no, Scripture says it's by faith alone. But there's another question, and they're all linked together, uh, but today's sermon focuses more on this question. Can a Christian be certain that they're saved? Can a Christian be certain that they're saved? Can she have assurance that she belongs to God? And... Throughout the sermon and starting here in the intro, we're going to think of uh, especially the Roman Catholic view, even up to today, uh, and what we'd say contrast with what Scripture teaches. Uh, Roman Catholics, if they're being consistent with their documents and their tradition, would give a resounding no. Uh, a believer can't, in fact, shouldn't be too sure of their salvation. Uh, the Council of Trent, uh, which was in the 1500s, in many ways in response to the Reformation, has a whole chapter, chapter or section 9, against the vain confidence of heretics. And we'll look at that more uh, uh, to come, but it, it, toward the end of that document, it says, No one can know with certain faith that he has obtained the grace of God. No one can know. I was reading some more modern Catholic scholars, because you might think, okay, well, that was the Council of Trent, but things have progressed since then. But, and 
Roman Catholic authors today in some ways try to sort of skip around it and say, well, certainly Scripture seems to say that you can know that you're a believer and, and, and you have the grace. And um, so they try to skirt around it. But even in these words, let me read just a few words from this one author. Um, they say, quote, one can be confident of one's present salvation. Uh, this is one of the chief reasons why God gave us the sacraments, to provide visible assurances that he is invisibly providing us with his grace. Uh, and one can be confident that one has not thrown away that grace, so you see what's implied there, by simply examining one's own life and seeing whether one has committed mortal sin. And we could Someday we could mortal and venial sins, but we won't go there today. Likewise, by looking at the course of one's life in grace and the resolution of one's heart to keep following God, one can also have an assurance of future salvation. And hear these words. Again, I'm quoting. It is this Paul speaks of when he writes to the Philippians and says, quote, And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6, and we're thinking, amen. Uh, but hear their words, this is not a promise for all Christians, or even necessarily for all in the church in Philippi. Uh, but it is, it is a confidence that the Philippian Christians in general would make it. He goes on to say that not even Paul was sure of his salvation. Uh, that throughout history, and this is in the founding documents, that there have been a few saints that God has spoken to directly to say, You're, you will have salvation one day. And maybe you can count on one hand or two hands, those who can have assurance. But not even Paul did. He wouldn't be that presumptuous. The Paul who just said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so some of this sounds very pious. It says, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous. Um, I don't want to be arrogant, and certainly we would similarly, in the book of Hebrews would speak against someone who says, oh sure, I believe in Jesus, I'll be saved, and who shows no fruit, no evidence that he's changed their heart. But it, it sounds pious until you think of a parent and their child. Right, of course, every parent says something like this, oh yes, it, um, I, I don't want my children to be too secure in my love for them. I can't have them growing complacent in their assurance of my love, and certainly I don't want them to despair. I want them to have some you know, good hope that I love them, uh, but I also don't want them to know with full certainty that they can come to me at any time and find love and care. The point of the message this morning is quite simply that Scripture teaches the opposite, we're going to see this morning the glorious assurance of the gospel. And, and, and we're going to argue that every other false gospel ultimately cannot give you this assurance. Either by design, Rome by design says, we don't want you to have the assurance, come to the church. Or, or even other false gospels who, who think they're giving you the assurance. If it's not the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot have assurance. Just as we saw, the true gospel will tear away from you, Philippians 1.6, and say, that's not for you, Christian. No other gospel can give you Hebrews 4.14-16. 4, Christ alone gives confident access to God. That'll be the, really the point to summarize. Christ alone gives confident access to God. And we'll look at just two points. First, Christ alone, the one who gives access, who is it 
that gives us access. Why him? And then number two, the confident access. What kind of access do we have? And so let's look at the first point. Christ alone gives access to God. We focus on that question of who. What do we mean? You know, in, in uh, Sunday, mor- uh, Sunday morning uh, adult Sunday school, we've been emphasizing the five solas of the Reformation. Faith alone, grace alone, and, and Christ alone. They, they all sort of uh, find their terminus in Christ alone. Well, who is this Christ and why would it only be in him that we have salvation and we'll see assurance of our salvation? Well, in one sense, we're, here we are just parachuting into the book of Hebrews. Someday I would love to preach through it. Um, but there's many ways you could summarize um, uh, this wonderful book. We're uh, not confident in who the author was. Some think Paul, some think another apostle. Um, but this author of Hebrews, you could say his main point is Christ alone over the whole book. Um, we saw last week, at, as we finished the series in Luke, we saw the, uh, the glorious necessity of the gospel that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's exactly where the book of Hebrews picks up. Um, that long ago, God spoke in many ways to the prophets, but now he has spoken through his Son. And he goes on to say that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, upholding the universe by the word of his power. He, he made sacrifice for sins. He is seated in power. And so now this author who's writing, we think, in about 60 to 70 AD, seems like the temple hasn't been destroyed yet. Um, and he's writing to these Jewish believers that are scattered and pointing back to the finished work of Christ and saying, Christ alone. Christ is enough, believer. And he does this by saying Christ is better than all these other things, even good things. Christ is better than the angels of God. That's chapters 1 and 2. Even angelic beings who live to give glory to God, and this is good, but he is better than the angels. He didn't come to save the angels, but to to save men and women. He is better, superior, above. Secondly, he's better than Moses and the law. Moses was good, good guy, right? Uh, The law was good. It was given by God to his people to reveal sin and then to show them how to live by the Spirit's work. But Christ is better than Moses in the law. The law was good and temporary by God's design. Christ is uh, uh, never-ending and and completes what the law started. Uh, Christ, that's chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 4 through 7, we're right in the midst of that. Christ is better than the Old Testament priesthood. Again, it was good by God's design, but Christ is better. He is the completion. Every priest, every sacrifice, all pointed to Christ uh, who came and fulfilled this. And so chapters 8 and 10, we'll call him the greatest high priest. And then chapters 10 through 13, we'll say, therefore, hold fast to this Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so if the main point is Christ alone in Hebrews, that's the main imperative. Hold fast to this Christ. And you see that all over Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, uh, Hebrews 12, all over the book. These calls to hold fast to this Christ. And I would say then one of his main purposes is assurance. Even as there are those warning passages. He he wants someone who's not a true believer to be uncomfortable and to say, wait, I might not know this Christ like I thought I did. But he wants them to come to know him. As much as there are the warning passages, you see the assurance all throughout. 
Hebrews 6, 9 says, Though we speak in this way, after one of those controversial passages, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. A consistent Roman Catholic couldn't give you chapter 6, verse 9. In your case, we feel sure of better things. But that's a promise for believers. Or chapter 12, 1. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. And so he wants us to see Jesus, and in this section, to see that Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament priesthood. And so what was a priest in the Old Testament? Uh, One author uh, by the last name of uh, Voss puts it this way, A priest is one who brings near to God. If a prophet is one who brings God to the people, in a sense, brings God's word to the people, a priest is one who brings the people uh, to God. And so the Old Testament priests were worship leaders in the sanctuary, um, and they oversaw the sacrifices of the people, the the thank offerings, the sin offerings, uh, all of it. Again, good, temporary, pointed to Christ in the fulfillment. You had priests, and then you had high priests, Uh, The high priests were over the other priests, uh, obviously, and they uh, especially directed the people to complete the duties of the law and the temple, to hold fast to the covenant. They oversaw the sacrifices and offerings, and once a year, on the Day of Atonement, they would enter into the most holy place in the temple. Remember at the end of Luke's Gospel that that's the very curtain that was torn, right, as Jesus died on the cross, opening up the way to this Holy of Holies that no one would dare to go except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's what the high priest, and that's what this author of Hebrews is evoking, so that he could say, Jesus now is not just the great, he's the greatest high priest. He's the high priest of high priests. Chapter 7 says, This makes him a guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, Jesus, if we answer the question, why Christ alone? Uh, Because he is the greatest high priest. He is the only one able to do this. The high priests of old had to sacrifice for their own sins first and then the people. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He is fully man, but he is fully God and able not only to offer a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord, but able then to save his people and now able to intercede for them. The Roman church tries to set up weak and sinful human flesh as if it was some infallible mediator between God and man. And the best they can say If they're being consistent, and let me just say it here, there are many, praise God, there are many inconsistent, and maybe you today, there are many who have been raised in the Catholic Church or or even priests or even practitioners who are inconsistent and who rely on Christ alone for their salvation. And God's grace is enough for them. But for those being consistent, they can say at best, come to God maybe, Uh, through these men that we've placed between you and God. But God sets up uh, his sinless son as the one who truly sympathizes, as we'll see, 
with us in our, in our sin and, and, and weakness uh, as the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, 5. He is the only one who is able, and he is the only one who is a sympathetic uh, high priest. And, and we see that, of course, in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Calvin says the Son of God not only excelled in glory, but that he was also endued with equal kindness and compassion toward us. And it's interesting, in chapter 5, the author of Hebrews will say the human high priests, they could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since they themselves were beset with weaknesses. And so, of course, on a human level, we on a human level, we even look for mentors and leaders. We don't want a mentor or leader who says, I never sin. You're like, well, I'm going to find a different mentor because you're lying, right? At the very same time, we don't want to sit down with a leader and we sort of share what we're struggling with and they say, yeah, I've done exactly all the things you just said like today and I do them every day and I'm just a struggling sinner. And no sense in which that they're relying on the grace of God and can, and can give you advice by God's grace. So on a human level, of course, we respect that honesty. We want people beset by weakness like us. And yet, even on a human level, we want someone who truly struggles, who is honest, and yet who is overcoming, right, by God's grace. But even here, Jesus is even greater than that, right? A good mentor can give that to you. But only Christ is the sinless one who can sympathize because he became like us, even in our nature, fully human, and second, in our experience of being tempted even, yet without sin. Yet without sin. And, and it's interesting here, the word sympathize comes from the same root of the English word compassion, uh, which literally means to suffer with. Uh, to suffer with. That when you have compassion on someone else, it's, it, it's, you're entering in with them. There's, there's a shared um, experience and we say that Christ was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And some will counter, well, if, if Jesus never sinned, he doesn't really know what it feels like to sin and to fail. And um, so he doesn't really know my whole experience. He can't really sympathize with me. One author counters that and says, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. Do you get what that author's saying? Only Jesus knows, really, the strength of external temptation to sin right to the bitter end. All of us have failed somewhere else down the line before we ever experienced what he experienced in terms of external temptation so that he does know what it's like. Uh, in a way that you want him. You don't want him to have experienced sin. You want him to experience temptation to sin and overcome it at every turn. This is why Christ alone grants access to God. Christ alone. Well, what kind of access does he give us? Because maybe, maybe some other false gospels, and maybe on paper they would say, sure, it's in Christ alone. You know, Scripture's pretty clear. Faith in Christ gets you access to God. 
But let's press it and say, what kind of access do we get? What kind of access do we get? The author of Hebrews is, is emphatic here. Uh, first, um, well, let me just read verse 16 again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm, I'm sure you could answer that. What kind of access? I'm sure you could give great answers just from this one verse. Um, this isn't sort of wishful thinking. This isn't come into God's presence but stand at the back. Now, the critic might say, yeah, but you skipped over chapter, uh, verse 14, the, the tail end of that. Let us hold fast our confession. That's the other imperative here. Let us hold fast our confession and let us draw near. Those are the two, what do we do here, author of Hebrews? And, and, and I actually came across uh, Roman Catholic authors who would say, look, uh, the Protestant misses verse 14b that says, it, it's only those who hold fast to the very end who can have access to God. And in a different sense, of course, we would say the perseverance of the saints, that, that the Holy Spirit works in us and he will keep us. Salvation from A to Z, he brings us all the way home, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying, no, verse 14 says that it's contingent upon how fast you hold him. Right? There's a few saints out there who have had faith strong enough that God rewarded it with a special word that says, you have access to the throne of grace. Paul wasn't among that number, apparently. But if you even look at what the author of Hebrews means by that, you could see the assurance wrapped all in it. Uh, chapter 3, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, we could stop there, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, he who was faithful to him who appointed him. It's not the confession. It's not, is your confession of Christ strong enough for God to reward you? No, it's he, Jesus is the high priest of your confession. He's overseeing it. And he's the object of your confession. Your faith is in him. It, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And as we saw in chapter 12, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's why when we say, Christian, what do you believe? We, we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And only him. And so friend, if you've come today, you're probably sensing that this kind of assurance is only for those Indeed, who have confessed Christ, or in the words of our catechism, have received and rested upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. And so in some ways, those Roman authors are, they are answering a, a, a thing that we need to think about. There are those who would presume and say, oh sure, I, I read my Bible once a year and I, I know Jesus and I was raised in the church. But that's different than saying, that's my Savior. I deserve death, and he died in my place. He's the great high priest. I could do nothing but through him. 
I, I want to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, his grace alone. Friend, if you would do that even today, then the rest of the, all the pro, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is for you. It's a promise for you if you're in Christ. And we start to answer then, really, what, what kind of access is this? It's the kind that leads to that imperative in verse 16, draw near with confidence. Draw near with confidence. Do you see the good news, the gospel, wrapped up in the fact that there's an imperative, there's a command to draw near to God and to receive from God? No false gospel can give you that. The best they can do is say, Something like this. This would be their paraphrase. Let us then strive diligently every day to draw near to the throne of grace. A throne and a grace you will not truly experience until perhaps one day. If your own efforts are enough. Or if the overabundant works of others and saints before you are enough. To bring you to his throne at last. But you, you won't know till then. And so strive, Christian. Strive. Strive. If all we had was verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is such a precious Promise or Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Do you get what these authors, they don't want the Christian to walk away thinking, I, I might have access. It, it, later in the words of our catechism, and Pastor Calvin brought this up this morning, when we think of the idea of adoption, when, uh, one uh, key doctrine is when we're justified, we, we become adopted into God's family. And one way of summarizing what that means is that we're received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Just like the parent who wants their child to be assured. In fact, knows that it's only in that assurance that the, that the child grows and where discipline is effective. and it, like That assurance undergirds everything because they belong to the parent. We belong to Christ if we put our faith in him. And what do we have access to but unending mercy and grace? Unending mercy and grace. Mercy, of, of course, speaking of, our, of the forgiveness of our sins once and for all in salvation, but then uh, just as in you know, 1 John, that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he's still our high priest making intercession for us, we receive mercy. And as if that weren't enough, we receive grace to help in our time of need. We receive grace to help in our time of need. Again, this is what consistent Roman Catholics, but also other false gospels, but let me put it in these words. Another part of that same Council of Trent puts it this way. If anyone says that it's necessary for everyone for obtaining the remission of sins that he believed for certain and without wavering that his sins are forgiven him, 
let him be anathema, or let him be condemned. If, if someone teaches that you could have certainty uh, that your sins are forgiven, and, and yet what do we see here? You, you come to the throne of grace with confidence through Christ, and you receive grace. You receive mercy unending. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's mercy and forgiveness, but it's more. It, it, it's an empowering, it's an active grace uh, for our time of need, or it could be translated like timely help. And that's exactly where false gospels pull the rug out even still. They say strive, but they don't give you this. They don't give you verse 16 that says, oh, and, and if you come to the throne of grace, you're going to receive the grace that you need in order to strive for his glory. Instead, the prayer of the Christian throughout the ages, as St. Augustine put it, On your exceedingly great mercy rests all my hope. Give what you command, and then command whatever you will. God, give what you command. Empower me to do what you would have me to do, and then command me. Show me your law, and it will be life for me. And it gives us this grace to help in our time of need, even time of desperate need. It means that if you belong to Jesus, you can come to the throne of grace in your time of despair. In your time of death, whether death that you're facing in your own life or loss that you're facing of a loved one, you can come to the throne of grace and you will be ushered in. You won't wait at the back for more saintly saints above you. No. You'll be ushered right to the throne of grace. You will find timely help in the midst of depression. As he lifts you up, even if you struggle through that, in times of discouragement, uh, in your sense of overwhelm at the world, you could find grace to help in your time of need. When you're overcome by adversity, you could find grace to help in your time of need. When you find that your own heart is, is lacking in its love for God or love for family or the things that God would have you do and you're fighting and striving, but it, it's just, it, it just has been a drag and Lord, what is going on inside of me? You could find grace and mercy to help in your time of need. You can come, you can draw near. It's a command, which means uh, that he will empower you to do so to draw near and receive. No false gospel can give you this. And no false teacher can take it away from you. Your confident access to God through Christ, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that it points us to Christ alone for our salvation, and Christ alone for our sanctification, and Christ alone for our assurance even as he gives us the Spirit of God who assures us that we belong and through us cries out, Abba, Father. And so we pray to you now as those who belong to you, uh, would you strengthen us? Would you give us grace to help in our time of need? Uh, we know there are many needs here this morning, and we thank you that you are a God who is able uh, to give abundant grace and mercy. And we pray all of this.